Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. As state attorneys general play a more prominent role in policy issues, shareholders Alyssa Garden Swartz and Sarah Mercer discuss recent trends they're seeing across the country and some examples of consumer protection powers being used in traditional and also creative ways by state AGs to address issues in their states. Welcome to another episode of the Brownstein podcast series. Today, we're going to talk about state attorneys general. Hey, Alyssa. Hey, Sarah. So, Alyssa, you just joined us from the Colorado AG's office where you served as the deputy of the Consumer Protection Division. So I'm so thrilled that you're here to talk with us about this topic. I can't think of a better expert in the firm to be discussing this with. You know, we certainly have seen a lot of changes after the election in 2018. We now have 27 Democratic attorneys general, which is a majority of the seats across the country. And in addition, as the Democratic attorney general association likes to tout, that constitutes 58% of the U.S. population and 63% of the GDP for the United States. So that's a pretty significant reach. And uh, I'm wondering if you're sort of seeing any trends associated with that change that we just saw. Yeah, I think, you know, really two things. One is that Uh, And this is something that we started to see really with the new administration. Democratic AGs in particular are really getting more involved in policy matters. That is, they're sort of going beyond the traditional jurisdiction of state attorneys general being sort of the top law enforcement person in the state and um, really weighing in on larger policy matters. Um, such as, you know, the ACA and other areas where uh, they feel as though the federal government is not doing a good job of representing where their constituencies are coming from. The second thing I think we're seeing is that state AGs are really thinking about their jurisdiction more expansively to sort of step into what they perceive to be the void um, where federal authorities are not necessarily doing the work that needs to get done to ensure that their again their constituencies are adequately protected and served. And how do they do this? By filing lawsuits? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think um, what folks tend to know a lot about is that there are groups of AGs that have been filing lawsuits against the administration. You know, uh, we know about the emoluments clause lawsuit. Um, we know about, again, the, the sort of the reverse ACA lawsuit, right? There was a lawsuit back um, when it was the Obama administration and Republican AGs got together and sued over the passage of ACA. And now on the flip side, we see Democratic AGs that have joined together um, to sue the federal government to ensure that the ACA stays in place, essentially. So these federal government lawsuits, I mean, this isn't really anything new. These are sort of some political tools that both Republicans and Democrats sitting in those state offices at the attorney general level have used for a long time. But I think, you know, what you're alluding to is this additional sort of space and void that AGs are increasingly stepping into, certainly the Democratic ones, in perhaps taking on 
companies or corporations or other agencies in these other areas. That's right. And they're really in an effort to sort of be bigger players um, on the national stage in a variety of areas. They are thinking very expansively about their jurisdiction and how they can use it to affect change and, you know, again, shape policy in areas where I think 10, 20, 30 years ago you wouldn't see AGs um, participating. Um, so an example of that would be there um, in the environmental space, right? So uh, over the past couple of years, we saw Democratic AGs taking a look at ExxonMobil um, in particular and sort of advancing a, and I'm going to talk um, in consumer protection, as you mentioned before, sort of my area, but they used a consumer protection theory to investigate ExxonMobil for climate change issues, right? They were saying that similar to big tobacco concealing the fact that they knew that cigarettes were causing cancer and a host of other health issues, that big oil companies were concealing the fact that they knew about climate change and the damage it was doing to the environment, but weren't telling people about that. And so, I mean, those cases did not really get very far. And I think there were also, you know, there were some other municipalities that embraced that theory. They certainly got some headlines. Yes, they did. They did. <laughs> to Absolutely. Your point, to your point about these uh, state attorneys generals using this to maybe step onto a larger national stage, too. So That's right. I will say, though, that they've had some success on the environmental side and other areas. Um, the Washington AG just settled with a company um, that was they actually the Washington AG's office tested products that were being sold on this company's website. They were kids' school supplies and jewelry, and found uh, high levels of cadmium in those products, higher than was permitted by both state law and federal law. Um, and so they settled with the company for about seven hundred thousand dollars in penalties, as well as about $200,000 in refunds to consumers. And is that unusual because that's something that you would normally see the federal government taking action on or some other agency? Is that unusual to think that the, an attorney general would step into that role? I, I think that's right. I mean, I think that that's something where you are traditionally seeing, you know, you think of consumer product safety, you think of the Consumer Product Safety Commission, which is a federal agency, or you think of the FDA. But here's a state that is, and I know from having done this on the other side, right, it's it's not cheap to take products into a lab and have them tested. Um, so that's something where, again, the Washington AG's office really sort of stepped in to uh, to address the issue. I mean, other, another case that I've been sort of watching, um, because it really is taking a consumer protection jurisdiction to a new level, is a case in Pennsylvania where, um, in 2015, the Pennsylvania AG's office sued uh, a couple of oil and gas companies um, on both a consumer protection and an antitrust theory. Um, the antitrust theory seemed pretty clear because what they were alleging is the two companies got together to sort of allocate a certain area in Pennsylvania for each company to go pursue oil and gas leases from landowners and making sure that they weren't competing against each other. But what the Pennsylvania AG's office did was they advanced a theory under their Consumer Protection Act um, saying that 
these companies, among other things, engaged in unfair and deceptive trade practices by presenting the process that they were engaging in with consumers as being a competitive process when, in fact, it wasn't. And in motions to dismiss, the companies advanced the theory that they were buying oil and gas leases, and that's not something that occurs in trade or commerce, according to these these companies, because they were the buyers. When you think about consumer protection, you usually think about people selling things and making representations in the course of, of selling products or services. And the oil and gas company said, we're not engaged in this oil and gas leasing process is not trade or commerce. Which is interesting, too, because so oftentimes those unfair trade practices can also encompass terms and conditions of contracts, for example. And so often in oil and gas leasing, especially when the uh, seller is an individual, the oil and gas companies will put forward their own sort of lease terms, which of course the... And so that's sort of interesting on a couple of levels. In addition, though, as you said, such an unconventional argument that the attorney general in Pennsylvania is making because it would appear to be just a a simple breach of contract claim or something like that, that the individuals would have a right to bring. Right. That's right. And it was interesting because the, the trial court denied the motions to dismiss, saying, no, this is still trader commerce. It doesn't matter that they're, that you know these folks are buying you know they're essentially sort of buyers because they're you know they're leasing the land from the landowners and they certified the issue for immediate appeal to the Commonwealth Court of Appeals and the appellate court recently in March this is a case I think I mentioned it started in 2015 so in March of this year the Court of Appeals upheld the trial court and said nope you can absolutely pursue or the attorney general can pursue claims against these companies under a consumer protection theory and this activity is absolutely happening in trade or commerce. And, you know, the implications of that are you may be looking at a different set of remedies, right, as the oil and gas companies. You may be looking at bigger penalties and restitution and more expansive injunctive relief that a law enforcement agency can get versus if you were dealing with, a, a like you said, like a breach of contract from uh, a private litigant. And that's a great segue. I wanted to ask you about changes that we saw to Colorado's Consumer Protection Act during our legislative session this year with the we, we just had a new attorney general elected. Uh, he's a Democrat, succeeding two Republican attorneys general. What did we see in the changes of the law with that bill? So that was very interesting. For a very long time, um, the the National Consumer Law Center, which is sort of a big consumer advocate organization, had rated Colorado as having one of the worst consumer protection laws in the country, right, primarily because um, it did not have – Um, what we call sort of a catch-all provision, which allows for prosecution of any sort of unfair or deceptive trade practice that has a likelihood to um, lead to misunderstanding or deception. So what the attorney general did was to propose legislation this year that would include um, that sort of catch-all unfairness provision, right, along with removing penalty caps that existed in the law. So prior to the the new law going into effect, there was a cap of $500,000 per related series of violations of the Consumer Protection Act. That cap is gone. 
So now folks who are facing Colorado consumer protection actions here could be looking at um, sort of an unlimited amount of penalties. The, C- the amended CCPA now affords the attorney general as well as district attorneys in this state a much broader jurisdiction when it comes to consumer protection. And the the third main thing that the amended law accomplished as passed, because as you and I know, it looked a little different when it was first proposed. But it also clarifies that the attorney general and district attorneys do not have to demonstrate that whatever deceptive trade practice they're alleging had a quote-unquote significant public impact, which case law in Colorado requires that any private litigants need to demonstrate that any practice they're alleging violates the act has a significant public impact. So that requirement for private litigants is still in place. And that's really a guardrail so that you don't have runaway private litigation against companies under the Consumer Protection Act, correct? That That's exactly right. But the argument certainly is that if a district attorney or the state attorney general is bringing the action, they're sort of by fact acting in the public interest. And so that fact doesn't need to be proved. Right. And that's exactly what, um, when I was in the AG's office, that's exactly what we would argue, because we would encounter folks that said that the attorney general's office still had to demonstrate significant public impact. And they would say that whatever allegation we were advancing didn't demonstrate uh, significant public impact. And we always took the position like, look, we're, we're a public law enforcement agency by virtue of the fact that we have determined that this case is a viable case and brought it on behalf of hundreds, if not thousands of consumers, that demonstrates, you know, we don't need to show that there's significant public impact. It's assumed. So now that's clear in statute. That is clear in statute, yes. So are you seeing anywhere else in the country any other sort of unconventional uses of the consumer protection laws by attorneys general? Um, Yeah, just two quick cases that I also want to mention. One is another Pennsylvania case, and it's it's both using consumer protection jurisdiction as well as uh, jurisdiction over charities and nonprofits in sort of a, a novel way. So the Pennsylvania case involves two companies, um, two healthcare companies, UPMC, which is University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and Highmark. The two companies entered into a consent decree in 2014 when Highmark purchased a um, hospital system in western Pennsylvania, um, because after that purchase, UPMC, which also operates um, several hospitals, said that it wouldn't contract with any Highmark members anymore for provision of health care with their providers or their hospitals. So the state intervened and uh, crafted this consent decree that required certain populations, certain Highmark populations, um, to be accepted by UPMC providers and hospitals. That consent decree is set to expire June 30th of this year. Uh, In 2016, the AG's office started to intervene because they saw that the expiration of the consent decree was going to be problematic for consumers in western Pennsylvania. They got Highmark on board to an extension and revision of the consent decree. UPMC did not get on board. So this year, in February, AG Shapiro filed a lawsuit um, requesting that the court extend the, the, the consent decree and or modify the consent decree in the way that Highmark and the AG's office had agreed upon. This sent off a firestorm, essentially. UPMC filed a lawsuit against 
the AG in federal court challenging his authority um, to file the lawsuit. And um, specifically, the AG cited to his authority over charitable assets in the state, which is a both a common law authority as well as a, a statutory authority in most states. You know, the AG alleged that he was ensuring that consumers got continued access to health care um, and that UPMC as a charitable nonprofit organization continued to fulfill its charitable mission. Long story short, the trial court did not allow essentially a, a stay of the expiration of the consent decree. So the attorney general appealed to the Commonwealth, actually to the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania, requesting um, that the consent decree be delayed while the lawsuit you know, runs its course in the trial court. Interestingly, and you, you mentioned that there was another case, too, that you're watching. Yeah, the other case that I find fascinating is that the West Virginia AG's office sued the Catholic Church there. Um, and we've seen several AGs uh, get into the fray on the um, allegations of abuse against the the Catholic Church. But the West Virginia Attorney General sort of took a different tact and alleged a consumer protection theory against the the Catholic Church there, essentially saying that the Catholic Church runs camps and schools. And in doing that, Represented to consumers that it was that these were safe places, um, and that they were doing what they needed to ins- do to ensure that children who attended these schools and these camps were protected, and that in fact they did not do that. It's a very interesting way to get at this issue, right? Because there are all sorts of issues related to taking a criminal prosecution route because there's statute of limitations and so forth. So, you know, we've definitely been seeing AG struggling around the country in how to address this issue with the Catholic Church. And this is the route that the West Virginia AG decided to take. And one of the important roles that uh, litigation can play on the civil side is it allows opportunities for discovery. So information can be obtained not only through subpoenas, but also through discovery requests. And so maybe that might shed light on other issues that maybe a criminal prosecution just couldn't quite get there uh, because of statute of limitations or other things. That's right. That's right. So I'll be keeping an eye on that to see how that evolves. So what else are we seeing kind of on the horizon? Uh, You know, we've obviously discussed how the consumer protection laws and the consumer protection powers of the state attorneys general around the country are by, are being used in traditional ways, but also in creative ways to step into these voids, as you described it, and also to really try to address problems that attorneys general are seeing in their communities and in their states. And uh, are we seeing anything else? Or, and what, are you, what, are, what do you sort of have your eye on moving forward? Right. Well, um, I think it's worth mentioning that um, a week or two ago, 38 attorneys general, so a bipartisan coalition of attorneys general. That's Democrats and Republicans. That's right. Sent a letter to Congress in support of the Safe Banking Act, which would enable uh, marijuana-related businesses to deposit their money with federally insured banks. And in the letter, they talk about, the AGs talk about how they've seen the fact that the money can't go into a bank, they've seen that result in all sorts of 
gray market criminal repercussions and other repercussions that actually are sort of traditional areas for AGs to have an eye on, right? Consumer protection, sort of the traditional consumer protection view, as well as criminal activity in their states. And I just want to mention this is a little bit of inside baseball, but it is a big deal to get 38 AGs onto a sign-on letter. The sign-on letter is a way that AGs, you know, express their opinions about certain laws or certain federal agency actions. And um, in order to have a letter come from the National Association of Attorneys General, which is the you know, the overarching association for state attorneys general, you have to have 36 or more signatures to have that position in the letter be an official National Association of Attorneys General position. So, I mean, I think that's really big to see state AGs acknowledge the impact of not being able to have money go into banks from marijuana-related businesses um, how that impacts their states and their consumers. Yeah, and certainly, you know, that's a the complication there is that banks, while they could uh, choose to sort of take on that money uh, and take in that money if they're in an, in a state that has legalized marijuana, there is inconsistent guidance uh, from the banking regulators, uh, as well as inconsistent guidance really from the Department of Justice because marijuana remains a Schedule One illegal drug at the federal level. So even in states where marijuana has been legalized either medically or recreationally or both, uh, and states that have that system, the banking options are few and far between. And that certainly, that AG letter certainly pairs with what we're seeing in Congress, which is a bipartisan support for the States Act, which would authorize and allow marijuana, would really declare marijuana to be descheduled in states that have a legal regime. So that's that's really fascinating that now from that other, there's also another push then from kind of the AG perspective, which is that kind of law enforcement perspective right. uh, as well. So, wow. Well, we will sure keep our eye on that. Um, thanks so much for being with us today, Alyssa, and for telling us about what's going on with state AGs. Thank you so much, Sarah. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.